This is the place for all your news and views of life extension from around the world, the Longevity Now podcast. And once again, a familiar guest on today's podcast, Aubrey DeGray of the SENS Research Foundation. No better guest to take stock of how far rejuvenation research has come over the last 20 years. Listen in and hopefully you learn a few new things. And now I would like to welcome to the Longevity Now podcast a very familiar guest and the founder of the SENS Research Foundation, Dr. Aubrey de Grey. Glad to be back. Yeah, well, first up, let's get an update on what's happened in 2020 as far as the SENS Foundation goes. The last time we talked, things were getting pretty hot, pretty exciting as far as SENS seeding a lot of different companies like Revel and Icor and Underdog and Ocean and Covalent. I mean, we're talking about things really moving ahead in the last couple of years prior to 2020. What has happened this year in a similar vein that people can look forward to? So yes, it's certainly been another great year. We haven't spun out any new companies, any new project as startup companies, but we've been working very closely with the ones across that we spun out in the past. Underdog is still headquartered within the Central Research Foundation facility. And that's a very good thing. So, we, you know, we have joint lab meetings and everything. Of course, COVID has slowed us down somewhat, same as it has for everybody. We certainly benefited from uh, you know, the dedication of our researchers, willingness to work unusual hours in order to do shifts so that research is, uh, it, the, the, the slowdown of research is minimized. But it's definitely been a challenge. We, uh, even our education program, we suffered a lot less than it could have done. Some of you may know that every year we take roughly a dozen summer interns, undergraduates, who spend a couple of months working either in our own lab or in the labs that we work with. This year, quite a few of those labs had to cancel their internships uh, at the last minute. But by and large, we were able to compensate for that because the awesome Evan Snyder, who is one of the professors that we've been working with for many years, was able to step up and take half a dozen of the summer interns this year all at the same time at Stanford Burnham at San Diego. So, so that was very nice. In terms of the research, things are going pretty nicely. The mitochondrial work is still our most um, significant in-house project. Had some quite nice breakthroughs there. Was, Could you uh, explain a couple of the breakthroughs there? Because I remember in the past couple of years, it was amazing how... So many people out in the general you know, research community said this was just a bizarre thought that you could take the mitochondrial DNA and, and, and put them in a safer place, you know, in the nucleus. And, and they said it would never be accomplished. But obviously, you've proven that wrong in spades. What is the latest? I need to be a little cautious in how uh, you know, gung-ho I am about this because it's an incredibly difficult thing, no question. We've never, we've never underestimated it that. And even though we have now got a hell of a lot further than anyone 10 years ago would have believed possible, nevertheless, we still have a long way further to go, no question. So we had a big breakthrough recently, which, well, I can't talk about it in too much detail because it looks like we're a lot closer to getting several more proteins working. This is still in cell culture. But also another big thing that's happening is we're working in vivo now for the first time. We've got... Uh, we've been able to get access to some mice that were developed by a, a group in Germany. We're working with that group to uh, look at the ability of a construct to actually ameliorate a phenotype in mice for the first time. 
Um, so that, that's uh, that experiment is in its early stages, but we you know watch this space for 2021 on that one. I think really though the major thing that's been happening this past year is that the private sector side of things has grown enormously. We ourselves haven't spun out any additional projects, but even compared to 12 months ago, I think the number of startup companies in the rejuvenation space is at least double what it was 12 months ago. You know, I've totally given up trying to actually stay current in terms of uh, a comprehensive. I just can't do it. In fact, one of the most active investors in this space, Angela Bester, the grand Carl Flager, has done an enormously valuable public service by putting together a website called agingbiotech.info, I think, something like that. Agingbiotech.info. I'm sure we'll be able to find it and listeners will be able to find it pretty easily. Yeah, and that is listing all of the all of the companies that Carl knows about. It's well over 100 now and going up all the time that are doing important stuff in the aging space. And of course, the only reason that that's happening is because there is a similarly exponential growth in investment in people coming in, in people actually getting interested in this and who are in a position to write the for the five check. So that is at every level, all the way from angel investors, more and more of them coming in. Just in the past week, I've introduced two people to companies who are in a position to write 70 checks, all the way through venture funds. Let me mention BioAge just raised $90 million. I was going to come to that last because the venture funds tend to be focusing on the earliest stage, you know, seed runs or series A, and they'll be writing seven-digit checks typically. And there are now quite a few of those funds that are dedicated to longevity, as well as a number that are broad, broader in their, in their portfolio, but who are ramping up how much of their portfolio they dedicate in this area. And then, uh, coming to what you just mentioned, there are the institutional investors, the much more established players who uh, write much bigger checks. And yes, uh, you're quite right to mention BioAge, Christian Fortney's company, which actually was the first company in our space to break through into that kind of investor. Uh, they were able to get, I think, their Series A round led by a well-known company, Andreessen Horowitz, on Sand Hill Road in uh, Silicon Valley, and uh, a number of others uh, at that kind of Ivy League level, so to speak, have come in in subsequent rounds. And of course, those companies are now also investing in a bunch of other companies. So, you know, it's all really good. You know, one thing I should also mention in terms of the investment side of things is uh, with regard to public companies. So a lot of investors, just they only invest in public companies. I mean, a lot of other investors will go the opposite way. But, you know, it, it seems to be the general consensus that the right thing to do is to go public when you can. But one's got to be careful and not do it too early because of, you know, short selling and things like that. And the story is pretty mixed right now. Uh, so uh, the biggest bad news is a company called Restore Bio, which uh, was very well capitalized when it was private, went public, uh, had an unsuccessful phase three clinical trial, share price sank by a factor of, I think, seven, and it basically just got acquired and it no longer works in aging, to speak of, which is, a, which is not what we want. But... Restore Bio, remind me that, is that George Church... No, that's Rejuvenate Bio, which is... Oh, Rejuvenate Bio. Sorry, I didn't. Okay. No, Restore Bio was working on a taurine, uh, an mTOR inhibitor, you know, a rapalod. Another great example where things are looking rather better is Unity Biotechnology, which was, again, one of the first companies to go public. They also had a very unsuccessful clinical trial in the past year, 
and their share price also tanked in a bad way. But the company also had plenty of money in the bank and other trials going on, and lo and behold, things are recovering. I, I think the numbers are something like that it's, it was at $12 a share, it went down to 3 and it's now all the way up to 6 again. So, um, you know, could be worse, really. Um, so I think we're going to see more and more companies going public in the next year, in the coming year. Okay, and speaking of funding, uh, before we talk a little bit more about the science of aging and things like that, of course, you've mentioned in the past that funding was basically your biggest obstacle. And uh, it seems as though you're raising about the same amount of money every year. Is that a good assessment? You're, you're raising enough to keep your intramural programs, uh, research programs going. Uh, have you been able to increase the level of SENS research funding by much? So it's exactly the right question. The money that's coming in from the private sector is very unevenly distributed. So the reason why we have, over the past few years, adopted a business model at the foundation of spinning projects out into startup companies as early as we can, in other words, as soon as we get a critical mass of investor interest, is precisely because investors write bigger checks than donors do, much bigger checks. And so the projects end up being greatly accelerated by virtue of no longer being limited by financial resources. But unevenly distributed. In other words, basically, that only happens when projects get to a sufficient level of proof of concept that the investors can, at least the more courageous investors, can see an actual route. We can join the dots from there to eventual revenue. And some of our projects simply are not quite there yet. So with the, the, those projects are still reliant on philanthropy. And as you say, philanthropy has not um, increased significantly. In fact, if anything, it's been harder to make money for the foundation, simply because a lot of uh, historic donors, are basically, they prefer to invest if they can. And now that they can, which they were not able to before because there was no investment opportunity, you know, it's that much harder to persuade them to donate as well. However, of course, there are exceptions. One thing that's happened in the past couple of months, which is extremely heartening and welcome, is that one of our major donors, Michael Antonoff, who co-founded Oculus and has been giving a, a substantial six-digit sum to us over the past few years, he ramped it up, so he's given us a full million this year, of which most, like two-thirds of it, is being uh, used as a matching grant, which is why our... Um, end of year fundraiser, which is on right now. Uh, right now. The- I want to say that too. It's on right now. I donated and people who are listening to this podcast, please uh, consider a donation to SENS. Yeah. Well, thank you, Justin. Yeah. At the moment, we've actually got a trebling of anyone's money because we were able to augment Michael's $600 for the match with other five-digit donations that added up to a total of more than 300000 so they, um, certainly the first 300 or 350,000 that we bring in from small donations over the rest of the year will be trebled. Yeah, wonderful there. Uh, so again, consider uh, donating to the year-end uh, fundraiser here before 2020 comes to a close. Now, I was just thinking back, you know, because we've talked several times over the years about uh, progress in the field. And it was understandably kind of slow in the beginning. You know, there just wasn't much money, not many researchers. I mean, we're very limited. Uh, Now, you know, you've been going at it. I've been going at it for almost two decades now. And it seems with the expansion of private companies and things getting into phase two, phase three trials and all of the send spinoffs, boy, we should really be seeing something dramatic soon. But 
as of the date that we're talking, I'm not sure that there is any proven <laughs> rejuvenation technology in human beings. And we've seen a lot of great results in mice, even going back five years ago. Um, but of course, Restore Bio, uh, you know, didn't do so well. Unity's first trial, which was, you know, very, you know, people, a lot of people were looking into that. Uh, maybe they set things up a little bit wrong for that uh, arthritis um, uh, trial on Senolytics, but nothing yet. It's got to be just around the corner, though. I mean, what would you say? So there's a couple of things to take into account there. The first one is, remember always that rejuvenation is a divide and conquer strategy which means that we do not expect to see a massive benefit unless and until we get everything reasonably in play. Not perfect, but uh, we, until we can have some shot at, at, to some extent, repairing every type of damage. There is, of course, a degree of crosstalk between the types of damage, and that's why in model organisms we see, for example, very widespread benefits in terms of health from just removing only removing senescent cells, which of course is what led to Unity doing uh, becoming a very successful company so quickly. But you know we wouldn't expect the real uh, real jackpot until we get everything right. The other thing to bear in mind, though, is that there are a few kinds of ways to do a sort of end run around that that looking actually very promising. So, of course, the big news today or yesterday maybe is that. David Sinclair's group put out this paper showing rejuvenation of eyesight in a mouse model resulting just from expression of dedifferentiation factors, the Yamanaka factors. That paper actually in preprint form came out a little while ago, so those of us who are in the field, it's not really newsworthy, but it came out in real life yesterday. Um, and that's, that's quite big news. I think the other area which we can say is already quite big news is rejuvenating the blood. So. Of course, we've had a lot of talk about parabiosis and plasma exchange from various groups over the past several years. And let me briefly come back to the commercial side in this regard, because a very important thing, I believe, happened um, just a few months ago, which was that one of the key companies in that space, Alcahest, was acquired by a European dialysis company for a respectable amount of money, a quarter of a billion dollars, which was a, if I'm not mistaken, a factor of three higher than the valuation that uh, Alcahest had at their previous private uh, round of funding. So that's that's a proper exit for those of you who care about such things. And, you know, of course, it, it's only one. And it's a relatively modest thing. It's not quite a unicorn, as they call it. But it's, you know, it's still the, the shape of things to come. So it's definitely good news. And I think in general, what we're seeing out of the plasma exchange space now is very much the, the kind of thing we'd like to see. That's kind of a, a kind of surrogate for multi-system, multi-damage rejuvenation, because of course so much of aging consists of damage being effectively transferred or transmitted from one place to another through the circulation. And the fact that I think this was mainly shown by the convoy group that you can in fact get very successful rejuvenation just by diluting old blood rather than by by replacing it with young blood, that was, again, a, a big step forward. So people are getting pretty encouraged about it. Yeah, as uh, far as the science behind the diluting of the blood, uh, it's similar to, uh, you know, senescent cell inflammation and markers, I would imagine, where, I mean, the theory would be that the inflammation or whatever is suppressing normal function, normal, normal function of cells and other parts of the body. So you remove that, and then your body can do better at 
staying healthy or rejuvenation. That's just the high level layman's thought about that. Is that about right? It is, yes. In fact, this has been controversial until quite recently. So it was known, I mean, so Judy Campisi first suggested more than 20 years ago that senescent cells might not just be sitting there not doing their job, they might be actively toxic by virtue of secreting nasty things. And that, and she and other people eventually showed that that was true. Uh, but something that has not been clear until recently is whether the victims, the cells that are being affected by the SAS, are only the cells really nearby the um, senescent cells, or whether it's a systemic thing. Now it seems pretty clear that it's a systemic thing. It's an endocrine issue rather than a paracrine one. And that means that, yes, absolutely, when you're, when you're rejuvenating the blood, you would indeed expect the benefit um, in terms of the attenuation of the damage that senescent cells are doing. All right. You mentioned uh, David Sinclair's paper that just came out and about restoring eyesight uh, using uh, Yamanaka factors, correct? Just a little science question here about that. I mean, the Yamanaka factors have been known for a little while now and known that they can completely reverse the age of a cell, uh, but obviously, you know, dangerous as far as creating, you know, cancer cells I, uh, from what I've read, if uh, you would just go full bore and just <laughs> take all the Yamanaka factors. Um, what, what do you think about that type of rejuvenation and that line of work? Because it seems as though some of the biohackers who are taking GDF-11 and things like this are on a similar kind of vein where it's almost a resetting of, uh, I don't know, youthful hormone level type you know, action. What do you think? Are the Yamanaka factors a fruitful area of research? It's an enormously important question. And yes, certainly when just for pure proof of concept reasons, Manuel Serrano and colleagues first looked at expressing the Yamanaka factors in a living organism, in a mouse, they didn't bother with any kind of attenuation of the expression. They just said, okay, let's do it and see what happens. And sure enough, they got exactly what they expected. They got lots of these unusual types of cancer called teratomas and such like. They got, you know, it wasn't good for the animal. They weren't expecting it to be. And then Belmonte came along and Sokis did and did the, the natural next experiment, which was to make these factors inducible so that they could be turned on and off and you could have them on for a, um, you know, a just a little bit of time and, and so on. And he was able to find a sweet spot that appeared not to have any deleterious consequences and did have a substantial rejuvenation effect. And that, of course, got lots and lots of news a few years ago. Great so far. But, of course, mice are not humans. In particular, you can't tell what the long-term effects are going to be. And the long-term effects that people are scared about are absolutely the induction of cancer. Because a human body, especially a middle-aged human body or older, is chock full of cells that are nearly cancerous. Mutations happen all the time, every time a cell divides, and you know, just by random chance, you're gonna have a lot of them that have already acquired most of the mutations that they would need to have in order to become cancer. So if you push that cell into a little bit more cell division than they would otherwise be doing or whatever, then you may very well be increasing the risk of cancer, but you won't be able to see it for a long time thereafter because it will be right at the beginning of the carcinogenesis process. So very hard to answer that question right now. Sinclair has had the bright idea of doing things a little bit differently. Namely, he is not using CMIC. So there are normally four Yamanaka factors, but he's taken one of them out. And this is the one 
that is an oncogene. It's the one that's supposed to be most relevant to actual induction of cancer. So he may be improving the chances of this working out. For the particular paper that just came out, there was the additional thing, which is what also was the motivation for why Unity did their trial in osteoarthritis. It was simply that the gene expression could be done locally. It did not have to be done systemically because the eye is this you know, immune-privileged place. And therefore, the chances of having effects across the body were, were, were greatly reduced. However, I think if we really do want to go to the clinic, then you're quite right. We may very well want to find alternative ways to get the rejuvenation in cell, not to do things that are at risk of pushing the cell right the way back into pluripotency. And of course, that's what um, Ajax have been looking at for quite a while, the idea of expressing different genes, not the Yemen artifactors, so as to push cells back through what's called the embryonic fetal transition into a stage where they're more prone to regenerate, less prone to generate fibrosis or to repair tissues using fibrotic tissue rather than cells. It seems to be quite promising, but it's a much earlier stage. Far less work has been done on it than on the Yamanaka factor. Rejuvenate Bio are also interested in this kind of thing, looking at finding different genes that may have the right kind of rejuvenation. Okay, and how does that fit within the SENS uh, damage theory of aging as far as, I guess, it seems as though, you know, you, you can rejuvenate these cells and we've seen dramatic results, obviously, turning back the clock. Yeah, it fits in pretty straightforwardly. So, of course, the first way that it fits in is in terms of cell replacement. Just like any stem cell therapy, if you're making endogenous cells more intrinsically stem-like, then they're more prone to divide when they need to, to replace cells that have, have, have died. Um, so that's the first, that's the most direct way of fits into the, the sense classification. But as we're well aware, many in many cases, including in the clinic, we've seen benefits from stem cell therapy that do not arise from the replacement of cells that have died, and indeed can be achieved even when the cells that you inject are allogeneic. In other words, they come from a different person, and therefore they induce an immune reaction, and they are indeed destroyed relatively quickly. Nevertheless, there are benefits. And so the conclusion is that these benefits arise from the stuff that these cells secrete before they get attacked by the immune system. And they, you know, they have basically a, you know, the opposite of a sass, if you like. They, 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 they do nice things to their environment. And this just improves the ability of host cells to just do damage repair better or slow things down a bit. So it's a modest effect, but it's the kind of crosstalk that, that I was talking about earlier that we see when we remove senescent cells. Yeah, and it still doesn't address uh, some of the uh, accumulation of indigestible debris and junk and, and crosslinks well, right. and stuff, right? Well, right. So even there, it kind of does. So A little bit? Yeah. The nature of the crosstalk between the, dam- between the sense strands is that when you repair a given type of damage, you somehow just ease the system up a little bit and you improve the ability of the cell to slow down the accumulation of other types of damage. Not to repair types of damage that it couldn't repair, but to slow down the accumulation. And this this is what I sometimes call the penumbra effect, that the actual nitty-gritty nuts and bolts details of how damage is created as a consequence of being alive in the first place. In each case, it's a kind of multi-step process. And each of the intermediate steps can be repaired and reversed. It's just that 
it takes time to do that, and sometimes it doesn't happen, and the, the, the damage progresses, so to speak, to the next step, and eventually it gets to the point where it's truly irreversible. So if you can slightly improve the kinetics of that repair of the intermediate parts, you will slow down the accumulation of the damage at the end of the pathway. And that's the kind of thing that we're probably seeing as the major type, the major mechanism for this cross-talk. Okay. And uh, I have just a couple more questions. And one, I, it takes a little bit of a setup. I was talking to kind of an old debate partner of yours, Dr. Michael Rose, UC Irvine. And he, of course, has been pursuing aging under an evolutionary biology context for many years, for decades, in fact. And him and his group of evolutionary biologists are quite certain with a lot of data from a lot of animal models that aging stops at a certain point in late life from an evolutionary standpoint. And that if uh, we can reset the proteomic profile and genetic profile in a complex way, that boom, you know, you'll be rejuvenated or aging will stop. You won't age. And he's quite certain that all of the other aging theories, of course, are lacking and that uh, all of the other people who are working on what we've been talking about in this podcast are just kind of, you know, working on low level stuff that might provide a couple of benefits. He says he's done an analysis recently that if you can reset this very complex interaction within cells between protein synthesis and, you know, DNA methylation and genetic modifications, that you will be able to reverse aging. Now, have you thought about that recently? And do you think still that just reversing the damage that is that you've identified would do the same thing? Yes. So I haven't really thought about it recently because Michael hasn't produced any reasons for me to do so. First of all, it doesn't matter whether age, whether the damage accumulation trajectory levels off, uh, you know, still, you're better off if you've got less damage, so it doesn't invalidate the damage repair approach. However, of course, what Michael is trying to conclude from his analysis of the demography of fruit flies is that there may be some kind of magic switch that genuinely stops the accumulation of damage late in life. And if there is, then maybe we can find that switch and manipulate it so that it kicks in at an earlier age and the plateau of damage is therefore imposed at a point that is more tolerable in terms of health. Sounds great. There's a bit of a difficulty that it kind of denies everything we know about physics. You know, I don't really think that it that he's ever really made a good attempt to explain how a machine that lives in the physical world at a temperature higher than absolute zero is capable of actually not accumulating damage. He seems to be quite happy with the idea that his numbers, his life don't lie, and um, and he's inclined to say things like that they haven't read my book, uh, which is um, a little bit of a shame, uh, especially because I have taken the trouble, of course, over the years to identify exactly what's wrong with his math and to point out why his conclusion that aging actually stops is incorrect. He did actually, to his credit, he did actually, some of his graduate students over the years, to do some work looking at function, looking at actual health of flies. And sure enough, the results were, shall we say, they were ambiguous. <laughs> um, but yeah, I know I don't feel I have any particular reason to revisit that question. 
Revisit that. Okay. Now, uh, lastly, uh, we talked about uh, supporting uh, the year-end fundraiser for SENS. Is there anything else? I mean, obviously, they can subscri- people who are listening can subscribe to the newsletter, find out where you might be talking virtually nowadays, <laughs> anyway, for a while yet. Uh, but is there any other way or any other thing you want to mention about SENS to uh, potential uh, students out there or advocates, uh, ways of supporting rejuvenation? Sure. Well, so first of all, since per se, the charity, we obviously, as I mentioned earlier, we have this education initiative that we spend maybe a quarter of our budget on. And we believe that it's an extremely valuable contribution to the community because we bring in the most unbelievably talented kids. But it's, it's pathetically underfunded. You know, we can literally accept only about three or four percent of the people who apply. So it's literally harder to get into our undergraduate summer scholars program than it is to get into MIT. And the same is true for the other thing we do, the post-baccalaureate courses, which are basically people come in immediately after they've got their undergraduate degree and they come in for a whole year. So we take half a dozen of those each year now. So what I want to see over the coming year is an enormously greater investment in that. This is the way that we train up the people, the next generation of longevity researchers. A number of the people who've gone through our program over the years have ended up doing very significant things in the field. And of course, that's only going to increase, but we really need more. The other thing I'd like to say is actually in relation to the private sector again. I've mentioned there's this this beautifully increasing number of investors coming in. And of course, this is allowing a large number of startup companies to come and come along and get great work done. But I'm always looking at how that ecosystem is evolving, how it's changing, where the current bottlenecks are, which is often not obvious. And it changes. You know, from year to year, the bottlenecks change. I believe that the single biggest bottleneck right now is CEO material. In other words, we have great technology being developed in academia around the world and people realizing that the private sector exists and now might be the time to try to spin their work out of a startup company. But they don't know bugger all about how to run a company. They know all their science really well, and they maybe even are able to navigate the tech transfer process and create a company with license of the intellectual property and everything. But investors do not want to invest in companies that are not going to be adequately run because the people who are in charge don't know how. So what we enormously need, I believe, is a much better pipeline of people who do have business expertise and experience, not necessarily even in biotech, certainly not necessarily in longevity, but who are in a position who just like the startup environment and are interested in partnering with scientists to make stuff happen. This is a proven method of getting things done. Companies out there right now that have done that, that I've been able to make the right introductions or help along, but which otherwise would not have got anywhere near where they are now. There's a a good few of those now, but not nearly enough. There's still lots of technology languishing. So anyone, if anyone's listening who feels like you might be the kind of CEO material who's willing to partner with scientists and get stuff done and attract investment in a way that the scientists on their own could not, then I'm the person to talk to. Aubrey, thank you very much for, once again, sharing your thoughts on the Longevity Now podcast. Well, thank you again for having me. 
It is nice to hear that the SENS Research Foundation is making it through the tough year of 2020, but the most positive news from this podcast, I would say, is the fact that there are now so many private companies jumping into the rejuvenation space that Aubrey can't even keep track of them anymore. Hopefully that means some viable therapies are arriving soon. Until next time, I'm Justin Lowe.